0: Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging, so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. We have a special guest on this episode. It's Dr. Hany Elwafi, a board-certified psychiatrist Hanny uses an impressive array of tools from neuroscience, psychology, meditation, nutrition, and mindfulness to promote healing and thriving. But Hanny is on the podcast today because he's been trained in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and is a proud member of the Ketamine Psychotherapy Associates Professional Society. And that's what I want to talk about today, that intersection of alcohol use disorder and just general trauma and ketamine. So if you're interested in how ketamine assisted psychotherapy works and specifically how it might be able to help you with corporate drinking, well, sit back and learn from Dr. Hani Alwafi on this week's show. Hey, Hanny, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, sure. I'm super excited you're here today. It's really my pleasure. Um, Before we get started, you know, talking about your expertise and all things work drinking, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're all about?
1: Sure, yeah. And, you know, uh, feel free to interrupt me if you need to slow down or clarify anything. I'm Dr. Hany Owafe. I'm a psychiatrist located in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I uh, specialize in ketamine-assisted therapy as part of my practice, and in general, I'm very curious about psychedelic-assisted therapies and their impact on the people who I try to help. What else would be helpful for you to know?
0: Well, I think you've got a deep expertise in the world of addiction, so can you talk a little bit about your um, maybe credentials in that, your research, what actually brought you to being interested in practicing ketamine-assisted therapy?
1: Sure, sure. So there's a lot there and I'm happy to to dive in there. So addictions um gosh, there's so much. I think to be human is to to crave something and uh, in fact, I wrote my med school thesis at Yale. We were required to uh, to do some original research and as a graduation requirement and mine was on the effects of mindfulness meditation on craving. And craving can take all sorts of versions, you know, from craving a substance to craving love, to craving attention to craving relief. My research is heavily influenced by Buddhist thought. I'm not a practicing Buddhist, but when it comes to addiction, the, I find a useful uh, image to bring to mind is that of the Buddhist version of the realm of the hungry ghosts. And this this came to my attention. Uh, it's the title of a book by one of my favorite authors, Gabor Mate, the Canadian psychiatrist, who uh, is really fantastic. If you haven't read any of his work, highly recommended. His most recent book is *The Myth of Normal*. But the realm of the hungry ghost, and so the the Buddhists identify six realms of existence that we pass through uh, whenever you know we're reincarnated. Of which humans is one of them. Uh, gods is another. There's a hell existence. The realm of the hungry ghost is identified with creatures that have scrawny necks, small mouths, emaciated limbs and large loaded empty bellies. And you imagine these long scrawny necks and small mouths with these big bellies, they can never take in enough of what they need. So they're the, they're constantly seeking something outside of themselves to curb an insatiable yearning for relief or fulfillment. And that just kind of encapsulates in a lot of ways, addictions that I think we have the craving, the wanting something outside of yourself to meet a need inside of yourself.
0: I like that you differentiated that cravings could be multifaceted, right? They could be physical, they can be emotional, they can be, you know, nourishment, even something that is healthy can become a craving and we crave too much of it. So you know, specifically a Corporate Drinker, we focus on alcohol abuse and misuse, right? But I mean, alcohol is just one of many things that people can abuse in this world. So when you started your practice, and I would love to hear more about that, I bet you see all kinds of addictions, right? Or multiple addictions uh, within one human being. Can you Can you talk about the state of people that kind of come in and seek out your work and seek your help?
1: Well, sure, there are people like, you and I, you know, uh, they're people I identify with myself. I've had my own cravings and addictions and and whatnot. Uh, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say, I was a cigarette smoker for for a dozen years uh, at least in my teens and twenties. There are people like you and I who are seeking relief, looking for comfort, recognizing that there's something that isn't. Quite doing it for them that they shouldn't do, whether it be smoking or drinking too much, uh, but really having trouble turning away from it, having trouble finding an alternative, another way to satisfy those cravings. And what we work on here is identifying underlying needs that people might have. It's sort of, it's sort of like what kind of itch are they trying to scratch, and why does this substance, a cigarette or this other sort of thing, it may reliably scratch the itch, but is it isn't the only thing that can scratch the itch? And, um, but, but yeah, there are folks like you and I, and I've also had the experience of working in emergency rooms, psych- psychiatric emergency rooms, um, notably the VA. Uh, I spent a number of years working at our local VA hospital, um, intermittently, not as a full time thing, but intermittently. At, the folks who it's just so sad the folks who come in really in the throes of in particular alcohol addiction but also cocaine and methamphetamine and you know we're talking two three bottles of vodka in a day yeah
0: know. yeah right
1: um and just suicidal really at their wits end wanting to to stop i mean so it, addiction really runs the gamut from these sort of cases to just like a, i can't get off my phone
0: for for sure although i would take my phone addiction over addiction to vodka any day of the week i mean let's be let's be fair but i'm fascinated because you talk about addiction right and for many of us we know some of the stats behind alcoholics anonymous or narcotics anonymous and we know for many people that just doesn't quite do it stints in rehab have high failure rates so i just wonder your your vector into all of this is ketamine like, what's that like and is it effective? And what is it, I guess, is my my core question. Like, tell us about that.
1: Sure, sure. And um, uh, I think it might be helpful to step back a little bit and share just some of the basics about ketamine and then more specifically how it helps or might be able to help folks with alcohol. Ketamine is classified technically as a dissociative anesthetic. And so discovered in the 60s, approved in 1970 by the FDA. For decades, it's been used as an anesthesia medication. Uh, Wait, and
0: you say it was discovered, so it's not naturally occurring out in nature like a mushroom or anything like that? That
1: has been the prevailing wisdom, although some recent research has uncovered some natural sources of ketamine, uh, but I, I don't want to get on that tangent.
0: <laughs> right. okay. The
1: vast majority of folks believe it is a laboratory synthesized molecule. And so for decades, it's been used as an anesthetic because it has incredible pain relieving qualities, but it, unlike other anesthetics, it doesn't knock out consciousness. It really, uh, what it does is it dissociates a sense of body from mind. And so, uh, and of course, this is dose dependent. You can go deeper and deeper into this state, but you start to lose touch with what your body feels like and all the while maintaining control over your breathing and your heart rate, which other anesthetics don't do, which is why you need to be in an operating room with a ventilator and that sort of thing. Ketamine is a fascinating drug, and it's in fact, it is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. Uh, there are a number of medicines they've identified as essential for uh, adequate health care, uh, things like, you know, Tylenol and uh, Heparin or warfarin for blood thinning, uh, antibiotics, uh, ketamine is on that list because of its uh, efficacy in pain management and anesthesia. But around the year 2000, some research started emerging uh, from various mental health departments, notably Yale, my alma mater, Yale uh, School of Medicine, uh, John Crystal in particular, investigating reports that ketamine seem to have mental health benefits, particularly for depression. And, uh, you know, fast forward to today, over the past 15, 20 years, a substantial body of evidence has grown that ketamine can be really helpful for folks who suffer from depression, particularly depression that is not helped by traditional antidepressants like your Prozac's of the world. But not just depression, also PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and addictions, in particular, alcohol use disorder, and uh, there are those who postulate that ketamine kind of works uh, on a layer in, in beneath all of this. You know, it's not sort of that all these kind of emanate from the same substrate, so to speak. They they grow in the same garden, if you will, um, that that ketamine affects. But uh, but yeah, ketamine can really help folks drink less, achieve abstinence, and come to terms with their drinking.
0: Wow. So when someone is interested in a ketamine session, there are clinics popping up all over America. And I know there are different experiences that people can have, but specifically within your clinic, they reach out and they say, I'm struggling. I have these cravings. What's the experience like for them? Uh, Take me through like first contact through actually encountering the drug.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I like to have a phone call with anyone who's interested in ketamine treatment, just to get a better sense for what they're struggling with and how they're hoping ketamine might help them. And so the first contact is is a phone call with me, and and we talk for a little bit. And my Hippocratic oath that I took as a medical doctor starts with first do no harm.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So my you know primary job is to make sure ketamine wouldn't be harmful to someone. there are a number of conditions uh for example uh pregnancy ketamine can be a teratogen uh serious cardiovascular illness history of psychosis if you have a primary psychotic illness Uh, but once we we kind of establish and, and again the call is just a general kind of introduction and we do sit down after that for an extended evaluation in my office where we really dive in and make sure ketamine is safe but you know the first part of treatment with me is making sure is this helpful is is this safe and then could this be helpful and what you're suffering with amenable perhaps to ketamine and ketamine's not helpful for everybody and that's sort of um you're right there are clinics that have popped up all over the country um are uh doing really great work some some appear to be more of a money grab, um, without throwing anyone specific under the bus, but I more comment on the capitalist kind of country that we live in. Um,
0: but I like your approach around safety. And I think that fascinates me because, um, you know, so often right now in our capitalistic society, right. We're looking to buy a solution. We're looking to buy a fix and mental health at the intersection of like consumerism and capitalism can get a little weird and a little murky. So it's interesting to me that safety has been kind of the primary way we've described what happens, at least initially within your clinic. So when you screen someone for safety and you deem it, okay, I mean, we never know what we don't know, right? But you're using your body of expertise. Then what's next? Uh, You know, um, I was just I don't know, thumbing through something online. It might've, I don't know what it was, it might've been like the local magazine and there were ads for like, buy a four pack of ketamine experiences, right? You know, and I was like, "What?" Well, I didn't know this was a commodity. So is that what it's like at your clinic?
1: Mm, no, that's not what it's like at my clinic. Good. Uh, I believe that would just make me a drug dealer.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, right. I mean, yeah. And probably a very wealthy and profitable one, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about the experience at your clinic. So you deem someone safe, like what's next?
1: So primacy of safety is is super important to me. And of course, it starts with first do no harm and medical safety. But, but we also look at psychological safety. And if we are going to proceed with ketamine treatment, we really prioritize that someone feels safe and comfortable with us and so this involves multiple preparation sessions sitting down together at, you know after the evaluation and working why are you here what are you hoping to invite into your life what are you hoping to let go of um what would be you know because ketamine i, I i'm not sure I, I mentioned this earlier but ketamine what we do is ultimately when we do the treatments, these are extended therapy sessions at my office on a couch that is made up quite comfortably with linens and blankets and pillows and a weighted blanket and eye mat, essential oils and music. It's really a very comfortable nest. And uh, that's one way we achieve safety is through comfort uh, we have co-therapists that we work with, for example, I identify as he, him, and if I have a, a patient that identifies as, as female, I make sure I have another female in the room with me the entire time to just really, you know, you're in an altered state, ketamine induces an altered state that uh, some describe as psychedelic, I, I take exception to that particular adjective for it, I, I view it more as an empathogen, uh, which we can circle back to later in terms of what that means. but. It is an altered state and uh, you want to feel totally safe with the people that you're with and the place that you're in.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Can we we talk about the word empathogen though? Because I think it's really important when we hear a word like that to quickly define it so it doesn't linger. So you described ketamine as not a psychedelic. So what's the difference between a psychedelic and an empathogen?
1: it's not a classic psychedelic and so the term psychedelic pretty literally translates to mind or psyche manifesting and i think it was coined by uh, humphrey osmond in the 50s or 60s in conversation with aldous huxley about you know these these medications and these substances and i think when we think of classic psychedelics we think of lsd uh which of mushrooms psilocybin mushrooms or you think of dmt we think of ayahuasca uh, these are substances that primarily work on the serotonergic pathways in the brain serotonin uh, receptors and tend to produce lots of visualizations uh, sometimes visions uh, alternate realities for people and then you have other classes of medications that do cause altered consciousness but are not like LSD or mushrooms, and that might include, for example, MDMA uh, ecstasy. And so, uh, ecstasy is not generally considered a psychedelic, it's considered an empathogen. Uh, the same for ketamine, and so, an empathogen is a substance that helps generate feelings of empathy for oneself, for others, for the world around you. Uh, to connect to a place of trust and centeredness and wholeness that, you know, within which self-love and acceptance and openness and trust can all emerge. And so you might see how safeties are pretty important in allowing these feelings to manifest.
0: Well, I'm really, I'm, I'm interested in that because you've described kind of like a nest like environment, a supported environment where there may be co-therapists in the room to help someone with the experience. What then is the experience like when I'm kind of tucked in under my favorite weighted blanket? Like, what am I going to feel?
1: So, you know, generally for most folks, the initial feelings are calming down, feeling a little calmer, uh, some warmth or tingling in your hands and feet. Uh, a sense of relaxation, a sense of kind of little aches and pains going away. And that some of that, you know, analgesic action that ketamine has that makes it such a valuable anesthetic. Disinhibition kind of just relaxing. And what I like to call this, this sort of entry into the space a transition from doing mind to being mind. And so we are so often caught up in doing mind, which is your to-do list, what do I need, you know, to prepare? What do I need to get done? What do I need to talk to? Where do I need to go? How do I need to get there?
0: What do uh, I need to avoid? <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, all the loops we get caught in. Um, and being mind is perhaps most classically epitomized by, by sleep. Just it's nothing you're doing except for sleeping. Meditating uh just smelling the roses that sort of activity being there or you know no it doesn't have to be like that. it ought to be being with a friend being engaged in a podcast interview with and i think that you know i know in particular uh in aa circles uh it is um the criticism that often comes up or a concern at the very least although interestingly the uh founder of L, of, uh, of aa was uh Had some pretty uh, big experiences with LSD himself, if I'm not mistaken. He did.
0: He did. That's part of the mythology they maybe don't tell you about, but yes. (laughs) So
1: I do think for some, if not many, turning to one substance to overcome another one can be problematic. And a lot of it has to do with your relationship to the substance, the way that you form relationships. But, you know, a helpful analogy might be if you have a a series of failed, you know, romantic relationships. Is it guaranteed per se that the next one is also going to be problematic? I mean, you may have some things you need to work on, but also sometimes getting into the right relationship can really help you work on those. Things. And I see it similarly to that, particularly when it comes to medications or like ketamine and also the classic psychedelics, that mind manifesting quality can help you ground into yourself in a way find a sense of safety that maybe eludes you otherwise and for me and i share this with everyone i work with it's really more fertilizer for your garden your inner garden of what you would like to grow and so uh, it isn't necessarily that just taking ketamine is going to relieve you of your relationship to alcohol or any other thing whether that be negative thought patterns or it's in your intention for using it the ketamine i mean can can be a fertilizer to the seeds that you intentionally plant and nurture and want to grow and are willing to put in a little you know work and elbow grease so to speak to to take care of but all other things considered having that fertilizer can help kick start the process can help the resiliency and yield of your efforts and all of that things you want to let go of things you want to invite in and so if the intention in turning towards a substance is to, 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 to center yourself and find a place from which you can kind of re- renew and grow again, uh, I see that as less problematic. But if it's simply to avoid and to uh, numb yourself and use for the same reasons you're using the other substance, then it's not going to be as helpful.
0: So I would imagine when someone drops into the state at Transformance Health, the work just gets started, right? You've done some of the pre-work, you've kind of understood intention, you understand what some of the goals are, where an optimal state might be at the end of this journey, but they don't just drop into some sort of altered state and have a singular experience that's quiet, right? You're interacting with them during that time period, Cor- correct?
1: Yeah, yes and no. And so, you know, uh, there are portions of the experience that might be pretty inwardly focused it depends on the person it depends on the dose it depends on the intention it depends on how the experience goes but it's a mixture of interaction and also inward focus on the part of uh, the journeyer and a flight analogy might be helpful you know the initial parts are kind of like the takeoff and there might be in terms of helping someone ease into the trip that is getting underway. And then the sort of cruising altitude might be pretty inwardly focused. And then the descent and coming back out of it might be a time where someone wants to to reach out and describe where they've just been or where they currently are or something different altogether that comes to mind. And there can be incredibly touching moments during 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 that that phase of the of the journey. Um,
0: Think, could you think could you think of an example that you can share? That's an incredibly touching moment.
1: Yeah, well, an example would be um, you know, a gentleman I worked with uh, a little while ago who, was in his 60s and had uh, suffered depression for much of his life and and out of depression, classical meds hadn't been that helpful and it recently and by recently, I mean when the, within the past, prior, you know, five years or so, it came to light that he might have been poisoned by a parent. So there is a condition called uh, Munchausen's by proxy, in which a caregiver might deliberately cause harm to a child. Let's say inject them with insulin or give them the wrong dose of a medication in order to sort of seek medical care and attention and receive attention that way and this gentleman became convinced that um, his mother had poisoned him to gain the attention of uh, his father who had been in the process of trying to separate from the mother and and he ended up being hospitalized uh, as an adolescent for a couple of months it was a pretty serious poisoning and was paralyzed for a while and in intense amounts of pain. And I think uh, this sort of experience squarely fits into the trauma category. Uh,
0: Yeah, I think so. Boy, that's a tough, tough road in his life. Okay. Uh, So he's 60 now or in his 60s and was still struggling.
1: And, you know, during the ketamine experience, he, he had a really intense sort of return to the hospital bed as an adolescent. But experienced it differently. Experienced the care of the nursing staff. Experienced the comfort, the bed sheets that you know were being changed, the pain meds, and at some point got to a point where he was exclaiming, "You know, the poison is leaving my body. The poison's leaving. It's leaving." It repetitive. And as he came to, we were talking about, you know, what did that mean to him, and he. Felt an incredible sense of relief that the poison, as he saw it, was finally out of his body. And of course, materially speaking, physically speaking, it had been out of his body for decades. But emotionally, psycho-spiritually speaking, it took it took a while. He wasn't ready for that. And and I think that experience. And he later described to me the feeling of feeling cared for again, being on a doctor's couch, being under the influence, really helped him re-experience and get a different perspective on the trauma and continues to have a different relationship. And so, you know, to this day with with that event. And so that's an example these medicines work in that there is sort of like a yes there's a biochemical effect and receptor agonism and antagonism and neuroplasticity and all of that stuff is all very important but when combined with this therapy format there is some healing that can arise some access to an inner healing intelligence that I, i believe we all have that the the effects of which vastly outpace the biochemical effects of the medicine. And
0: yeah, I see that. As you were, as you were sharing that, I was thinking about just how powerful it is to be storytellers in our own lives and how oftentimes through childhood trauma or just adult trauma or just, you know, life that's robbed of us, or we don't have the skills necessarily to do that. And so there's something really surprising in me in this conversation that storytelling, I always find to be very profound and very important, but, um, Good storytelling or the space to tell our own stories differently can save our lives, change our lives. Right? What do you What do you think about that?
1: Absolutely, I absolutely agree. I think that's a super important point. I think story we are all moved by stories. Our own stories are the ones that we hear the most, and we kind of sometimes get stuck in a loop of telling the story a certain way. And we can step back and recognize. There may have been more to it, or maybe I see it from a different perspective. We have that ability to change and affect the meaning of our lives. I mean, I think it was Victor Frankl who wrote in Man's Search for Meaning that that is the last of our great, of our freedoms. You know, sitting in a concentration camp, they can take everything from you except for your perspective, the perspective you choose to have on something, the story you tell yourself about what's happening, and you know this isn't to say it's always someone's fault so to speak if they're suffering it's that they're not telling themselves the right story it can be incredibly hard and some people go through unimaginable unimaginable horrors and and but we we do have we can access that under conditions of safety we can access that inner healer that wants to move towards growth in fact the name transformance the name of my practice denotes just that concept that inner healing intelligence that desire of the psyche or the soul or whatever you want to call it to move towards healing that we're wired to want to heal that it feels good that it's something we want to move towards but you know we are sometimes impeded in that process uh, sometimes by ourselves sometimes by others um and we may need some help cutting out the noise and hearing the inner voice and you know to bring it back to the topic of alcohol i think that alcohol is actually one of the primary noisemakers for many folks in the inner healing journey and you know i don't want to be completely anti-alcohol i think it can be responsibly and enjoyed responsibly but um number of things we put in our body for comfort and relief and enjoyment are things that sometimes get in the way of of healing and growth you know that soothing the soothing quality is sometimes an impediment actually
0: well as we start to wrap up the conversation i feel like i've got a good understanding of a little bit of the ketamine process right so the one thing I did want to ask before we wrap up finally is that it's not, to your point, just one and done. You just don't have one ketamine session, do you? It's part of a process of connecting with a therapist and really exploring things, but you're not fixed, right, after one session. So can you tell me a little bit about what what's the trajectory of this? How long does it go on? And do you have patients who have fully resolved addiction issues after meeting with you for a period of time?
1: So it's a great question, and I, I think I, I'll sort of step it back for a second and share my belief that um, for someone who who doesn't who says he's not a Buddhist, I sure do agree with a lot of Buddhist thoughts. Hear
0: this well, it must be your background in comparative religion. I mean, I find that fascinating. I mean, what a path!
1: Graduate yeah. with comparative religion, um, I focused on Eastern religions, Buddhism and Sufism and Hinduism, uh, just endlessly fascinate me and but the first noble truth uh revealed by the buddha is that there's always suffering it's an unavoidable part of life there will always be loss sadness uh, fear embarrassment humiliation We, we cannot eliminate these things from our lives there are some unnecessary sources of suffering things that we can we can sort of shed as unnecessary but getting into a relationship where it's not that we want we will remove all obstacles from our path but that we will learn how to endure those obstacles kind of like a, a stoic philosophy that stoics strongly will this as well marcus aurelius and epictetus but it, it's how you endure that matters the most and so these experiences whether it be one or multiple and oftentimes multiple do have a synergistic synergistic effect uh cumulative effect with one another can help us sort of gain a different relationship to the obstacles that we face and so when we say healing it isn't that you'll never ever experience discomfort or pain or sadness or depression or loneliness it's uh it's it's more about how you might relate to those things but you know from a on a a neuroscientific Level, there's a saying, Neurons that fire together wire together.
0: Oh, I like it. All right.
1: (laughs) The idea that you know the brain is composed of many different regions, and so there's the eye processing, and then the memories, and the motor movement. And any particular thought or activity might be a combination of you see something, you remember something, you think something, you do something, and that forms a neural network. And the basis of learning is doing this sort of thing and firing those particular neurons over and, over and over and over and over. And so neurons that fire together tend to wire together. And sometimes with certain kind of maladaptive thought processes and catastrophizing, negative self-criticisms. Um,
0: All the ruminating that people do, yeah. yeah like
1: stories that we've been telling ourselves, they can be on loop. And the longer they're on loop, harder it can be to create different you can't necessarily undo a loop you can find a detour you can sort of create a fork in the neural road so to speak and say well I know what's down this loop but what if I went down this pathway and the more you practice that the more it might become a path of lesser resistance in that sense multiple experiences with substances like ketamine or psychedelics or therapy in general frankly can help you rewire your brain in that way but it is work these substances are just the fertilizer you do have to put in the elbow grease but but it it, it is possible and um all the while the most important thing is to be kind to yourself we'll just throw that in there.
0: But well, I mean, you know, these you are know, corporate professionals know. who are listening. So <laughs> let's hope that happens. But a challenge for all of us. Um, indeed. Hany, one thing that's really fascinating about you is that you have a, have some experience in the world of corporate America. So can you talk a little bit about that and where that fits into your career?
1: Well, sure. Yeah, I'd I, uh, be happy to share. I graduated from Duke in nineteen ninety nine, which is uh, right in the midst of the dot com, the first dot com bubble, and uh, really a heady financial times. And I knew I wanted to be in New York City. I knew I didn't want to be a professor of religion. That I was really had just majored in that because of a personal fascination. And so uh, I ended up uh, turning to day trading in in the middle of Manhattan, and i proprietary trading at a hedge fund, and uh, you know, was uh, was uh, was an equities trader for about five or six years. Uh, lived through September 11, the dot com bubble bursting, uh, you know, the lead up to the Iraq War and the War. I saw so many different markets and uh, and attended many happy hours.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're in the thick of it in that kind of career. So, can you tell me what was corporate drinking like? during that time
1: oh gosh in New York City when you're in your work in finance uh especially with uh with with you know the day trading part you know we were done by 5 or 6 p.m we're pulling the midnight 1 a.m 2 a.m hours that some of the poor investment bankers are having to, to pull and so uh, yeah, you got some young people with money in their pocket and bars everywhere uh, and a very, very strong streak of com- competitiveness. <laughs> yes,
0: I can see that as well. Yeah.
1: Play hard and, you know, celebrating big days uh, on the market, drinking away hard days on the market. Yeah. Were
0: there were there old timers around who were you, who you looked at and were like, oh, I don't want to be like that?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Guys who would actually drink at work um lunchtime or just take a swig from airplane bottles in their jackets. And I, I just thought, oh, my God, that just doesn't I don't want to that doesn't look good. That And these are, you know, to me, they were old at the time. They're in their 30s.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, perspective changes, definitely.
1: Yeah, right. I'll-
0: I, I find that fascinating because, you know, you've gone into this world now where you're really assisting people who are, who are suffering and we are talking about alcohol. And I just wonder if you can touch on maybe some of the mechanics really quickly on how ketamine can help with alcohol abuse or misuse or however people see their journey with alcohol. How does it work?
1: I think the the reasons for people turning to alcohol and particularly heavier drinking days are, are multifold, but, you know, sometimes they start with seeking out joy. Sometimes it, it, it's seeking out relief, uh, wanting to socialize.
0: Yeah. Wanting to fit in, right. Yeah. Wanting to
1: fit in, Not wanting to be judged by others, not wanting to feel alienated or different. And, uh, you know, one of the ways that the, Ketamine therapy can help is by addressing those underlying feelings that come up, is helping to identify, oh, I feel bored or I feel stressed or I am worried I, you know, I'm going to be left out and um, the fear of missing out, all these sorts of things are, I don't know what else to do, you know, how else do you have fun, Uh, really connecting to the underlying kind of issue that might be compelling someone to drink early at least and finding other ways to scratch those itches. And again, when those those sorts of neurons fire together, they wire together more regularly. And you can let go of habits that don't serve you and invite in habits that do, whether it be going to a workout class or a yoga class or, you know, a game night somewhere or um reading, sitting down and reading.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, what I think strikes me is that I've talked to uh, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Dr. Scott Kellogg, and we talked about the intersection of addiction and identity. And so many times people have really tight, restrictive ways that they see themselves. So they may see themselves as a banker or a hedge fund, you know, manager, they may see themselves as a human resources leader and tied into that identity is also, I'm a drinker. This is what I do. Right. And so it's about expanding that identity maybe. And I wonder if ketamine helps with that as well. Really what I'm asking is, does it help us tell different stories about ourselves? Is that what this drug in part is doing?
1: It can, if you're, You're trying to tell different stories to yourself and so simply taking it won't convince you to tell yourself a different story, but if if you're at the point in your life where you would like to start telling yourself different stories where you're feeling like the old stories don't quite fit or the old shoes are a little too snug or uncomfortable and you need a new pair. This can accelerate the process, it can provide fertilizer for that process and. um, But it it takes work but. uh, yeah, he, the the story of I am a drinker, this is what I do. This is, you know, if I don't do this, then I will lose all my friends and
0: or I'll lose my clients or how will I be able to drum up business and entertain or be entertained for my organization? Yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of stories we tell ourselves about what we do and why we do it. So I I do feel like so many people have reached out to me over the past couple of years as I've worked on this project have said, I'm just, I'm just sick of it. I need a new path. I need a new way, which is what led me to your work and being curious about your work, because I think people are really hungry for a different approach and seeing themselves and interacting with the world.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, sometimes treatments like ketamine just simply buy you time the way that, for example, dry January might get you some time form a different relationship to alcohol. Uh, I know lots of folks, for example, at the end of dry January are like, you know what, gosh, I feel so much better. I'm sleeping so much better. I'm making healthier eating choices. I'm exercising more regularly. I think I'm gonna keep this up.
0: Yeah. There's actually been studies that they drink less throughout the year if they do dry January. So they may return to drinking, but it may be at a lower rate. Whereas the previous August, they may have been all out at the beach, you know, (laughs) on the boat or whatever, drinking, you know, six pack for lunch. And they may drink four four beers instead of six, but there's a noticeable decrease in drinking if you do dry January. So I like that ketamine can kind of be seen like that and buying you. Sometimes yeah,
1: Preparing for the experience, maybe withholding from alcohol while you're going through it just to maximize its effect. And next thing you know, two, three, four weeks have passed and you're in your rhythm with your life and uh, and feeling better. And it has less less sort of appeal to it.
0: Yeah. That's cool. I like that perspective. Well, anything else we need to know about how ketamine assisted therapy physically works with alcohol? You know,
1: there are some neurotransmitter related changes that might be interesting to know. And, you know, that uh, alcohol, so alcohol primarily works on the GABA receptor in the brain. And I don't know um, if you've covered this other times. Not, but- on,
0: not on a podcast. So please tell us a little bit about that, because many of us have had the experience of drinking before going to bed and then waking up in a state of panic.
1: Well, I recently learned of a term called anxiety.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: so, may describe a little bit of that feeling. And, uh, you know, what happens is, uh, and this is a bit of a, a simplified version, but, you know, in your brain, you have electrochemical signaling. And so you have neurons that connect to one another electrically. That's how they communicate. That's how we think. That's how we do. And there are certain chemicals that are like go signals, they're like green lights for that to happen and some that are like red lights and they're stop signals. And so the main stop signal in the brain is a substance called GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. And it just so happens that alcohol greatly resembles GABA and binds to GABA receptors in the brain and it's one of the reasons why it slows things down you relax you stop thinking as much and ultimately you might be able to fall asleep is that it supplies soft signals so to speak for the brain not coincidentally so does xanax and valium and clonopin and ativan they act on the very same receptors and they greatly resemble the action of alcohol and so what happens actually is When you drink regularly enough, your brain is constantly seeking balance, it's constantly seeking equilibrium, homeostasis, it's called in the biological world. And it'll it has sort of sensors and feedback loops and says, Oh my god, there's a lot of stop signal around. Well, we don't want to fall into a coma. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Actually, let's crank down the factories and the machinery that that makes our own stop signal. Let's pull in some of the receptors off the neurons and reduce the amount of stop signal around. Let's do what we can to do that. And also, while we're at it, let's get the factories to make more of the go signal to try to balance things out and bring it back to a balance. And so you're cranking out more of that. And what happens is the stop signal is temporary, it's based on the alcohol that's getting metabolized by your liver. And whether it be in the middle of the night or the next morning, your levels of stop signal are greatly imbalanced by the go signal in your brain. You've also impaired your brain's own ability to make its own stop signal. And so you wake up and your mind is racing. You wake up maybe because you have to pee or you're uncomfortable and your mind is racing and you just calm down. and this is seen really most prominently in like an alcoholic who really is just shaking and really anxious and agitated until they've had their first drink of the day but that's that's sort of the biological basis this this negative feedback loop that happens by the brain trying to seek out its equilibrium and you see this you see this with all kinds of well not all kinds of things you see this and there's an irony you know you, you see this with anxiety so people turn to alcohol or again, very similar benzos uh, are ultimately more anxious because they're constantly navigating this withdrawal uh, you know, cycle where they're kind of anxious until they get more of that stop signal in them. You see this with chronic opioid users who, despite heavy, heavy doses of pain meds, are in lots of pain.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Uh, you know, it's not a one-way thing. It's not like they're in a lot of pain and the pain meds just aren't enough. It's the constant wearing off of the pain meds and feeling frazzled. You see this in folks who really abuse stimulants uh, or maybe even turn to methamphetamine and things like that for, for energy and productivity and focus and ultimately are like a cat chasing his tail and can't really focus. Uh, kind of an irony in nature when it comes to abuse of these psychoactive substances. But, uh, you know, the good news is that that process is reversible uh, for for most folks. Uh, it does take a few weeks, which is why when people, for example, go to dry January, they don't necessarily feel great until halfway through. It doesn't, you know, initially there's like, oh, I don't know, whatever. It's not.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But by the end of the month, they're a whole different person. Absolutely. Weeks
1: in it, that yeah, it takes a while to crank the protein machinery back up and get the receptors back up and all that. So So
0: would ketamine have any sort of reparative element in that dynamic? I mean, does it disintermediate some of the imbalance? Does it bring your brain back to homeostasis? How does that work?
1: It affects all of those neurotransmitters and can help uh, increase firing the prefrontal cortex and reduce the inhibition of GABA neurons and uh, you know, without getting into the weeds, it absolutely affects, you know, the levels of GABA and glutamate and the firing patterns in the brain and, and what fires and what doesn't fire, you know, the neuron sets the to fire together.
0: Um, well, honey, I'm sold. <laughs> so, i mean we're not giving it out like candy here but i mean what oh, a- it's,
1: not, it's not for everybody and it would be remiss if i didn't mention that there are dangers associated with ketamine including addiction to ketamine itself
0: oh interesting you know, yeah
1: any substance that can cause pleasantness feelings of pleasantness or euphoria even or comfort or take away pain can be abused Yeah, you know uh, but it's uh when used as directed you know with supervision and intention with intentionality and not recreationally i think the odds of addiction are, are pretty low it's not physiologically addicting let's say like opioids or nicotine uh but uh you know and it's again we mentioned some of the contraindications earlier like pregnancy or psychosis it's not for everybody and even for those who don't have those contraindications it's not a silver bullet so that That's something I, I do. I am careful with folks about there is no silver bullet, but there are some things that can help you grow if you're ready to grow
0: yeah. uh, and definitely endure to yeah. your earlier point. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Obstacles that will inevitably come your way.
0: Well, I just appreciate you coming on today, making us a little bit smarter about the topic of ketamine. I mean, there's no way we could uncover all of it today, but I'm glad you're out there doing the work that you're doing. And if people want to connect with you, find out more about you, where where should we send them?
1: The best way would be through my website, transformancehealth.com. That's uh, t r a n s -S f o r m a n c e health.com. Email, phone. Uh, those are the the most direct ways to reach me. I'm not, I try to avoid social media, to be honest.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't blame you. I mean, you're a psychiatrist, you know what it does to the brain and to the human condition. So if you're avoiding it, I'd like to avoid it too. (laughs) So I appreciate though, you coming on today and speaking just so candidly and generously about ketamine assisted therapy and your approach to this. And thanks again for being a guest.
1: Thank you, Laurie. Thank you so much for having me and for doing the work that you do.
0: The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.